Thursday, 2018. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Poke Runyon, and tonight we present a review and a commentary on the Hypnoratomonchia polyphily. 1499, and more recently 1999 in English, translated by Jocelyn Godwin. This is one of the most important esoteric books ever published. And 500 years after its debut in Renaissance Italy in 1499, written in very stylistic Italian, it finally becomes available in a readable English translation by Jocelyn Godwin. The Hypnoratomancia of Polyphile is subtitled The Strife of Life in a Dream, and it is a romantic fantasy novel which establishes a template for many similar works to emerge in the five centuries following its initial publication. The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz, 1616, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, 1785, The Wizard of Oz, 1900, The Club Dumas, 1996, filmed as The Ninth Gate, and 1999, and the novel The Rule of Four in 2004. Now, the real secrets hidden in the book are not cryptic codes but rather allegorical and thematic, like that one tale in the Arabian Nights that reveals occult and magical secrets. That's that's the the one chapter in the Arabian Nights. Uh, But the chapter in the Hypno, Aradavachia, describing the Isle of Venus is near the end of the book. It carries the true meaning and reveals the esoteric secrets. So, If you want to learn what is really hidden in this marvelous old book, tune in and we will visit Polyphilo's Magical Dream World. Uh, Before I get into this, let me mention that that I uh, attended a lecture by Christopher McIntosh uh, uh, last night uh, in the the Santa Monica Scottish Rite. And... and, uh, uh, he's he is one of the leading authorities on Rosicrucianism, and at the in the question session afterward, I asked Dr. McIntosh if he believed that the Hipparatobankia uh, uh, had had an influence on Valentine Andrea's chemical wedding of Christian Rosencruz, and he said, yeah, "Absolutely yes," and then. Someone else who was interested in the in the, uh, the hipparatomachia from across the room asked him to expound on that, and he did, and he and he confirmed uh, some of what we're going to talk about tonight. And of course, Jocelyn Godwin, uh, the translator, he also, and he's he's written several books on the Western Western esoteric tradition. And Jocelyn Godwin also uh, believes that the um, uh, the, the hipparatomachia. Now, by the way, it's not the hypnoerotomachia. We, we, uh, you know, we keep wanting to put uh, the, an O after anything with hip, hip, hip uh, hypno in it. Uh, it's hip, hypnoerotomachia, hypnoerotomachia. Yeah, that that's the correct spelling. Anyway, uh, so with that preliminary uh, 
said, I also might mention, I mentioned the ninth gate. The, yeah, this is this is the uh, somewhat preparation for uh, for the ninth gate that, that is in the Club Dumas. It comes from the novel, the Club Dumas. But the um, those of you who are familiar with either the movie or the book, uh, you know that these illustrations, the illustrations uh, in in the uh, the ninth gate or the Club Dumas, are 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 very very similar to the woodcuts in uh, in in the Hipparamagia. So let's get into it. The Hipparamagia is a big book in more ways than one. It is 470 pages in length in its current 1999 hardback edition. And it weighs nearly seven pounds, and it measures 12 by 8 inches, and is almost three inches thick. Not an easy book to read in bed. Mercifully, the publisher, James and Hudson, has issued an identical smaller paperback version in, in 2005, which includes all the original illustrations. Although I have both versions, I must admit that I did not read the whole book until the more manageable and reasonably priced paperback became available. But I did read the best-selling novel, The Rule of Four, 2004, by Princeton grad students Caldwell and Thompson, in which they attempted to reveal the secrets hidden in the old book in a fictional thriller like Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. In my opinion, they failed in both aspects. They missed the secrets, and their story is not a suspenseful adventure, but rather a psychological catharsis. Of course, in their defense, one might say that the hypnorotomachia is also a psychological catharsis. The only relation that the hypnorotomachia has to the rule of four is the protagonist's infatuation with a co-ed editor of the school paper. The rule of four might thus be subtitled The Strife of Love at Princeton. My advice is to skip the novel and read Jocelyn Godwin's unauthorized guide to this bestseller. Professor Godwin is, of course, the translator of the hypno Rodomantia. Godwin has was given very, very little credit by Caldwell and Thompson or their publisher of their novel, although his translation seems to have been the cornerstone of their research and their inspiration for the rule of four. Now, the only credit I'll give to these two authors is that their effort, as poorly written as it is, did call attention to the real Hypnorotomachia and Professor, uh, Professor Godwin's very readable translation, which, in my opinion, is much more entertaining and enlightening than their fictional effort. However, I must say that Godwin himself withholds the real secrets of the old book, although I'm certain he knows them. Actually, his The Real Rule of Four is not just a put-down on Caldwell and Thompson's theories, but rather a teaser to get you to read his Hypnorotomantia for yourself. So let's, let's open the old book up and get into it. Now, the story is told from Polofilo's viewpoint. He is a Renaissance Italian youth who falls in love with a golden-haired maiden named Polia. Now, Carl Jung liked this, probably seeing Polia as a projection of Polofilo's Amina, uh, uh, Anna Animus. This is a love at first sight. He sees her in an upstairs window and is fascinated by her hair and beautiful features. 
He serenades her and writes her poetry like a Spanish caballero. She ignores him and rudely rejects his advances. He becomes despondent and depressed, finally sinking into an embarrassing and making an embarrassing scene which justifies her totally rejecting him. He falls ill and has a fever dream in which he enters a magical dream world where he goes on a quest to find the idealized polio. Now, this is the beginning of the tale. It's a story of his dream. And we follow him along in this magical landscape or fairyland, which he describes in minute detail throughout the book. Many of the scenes, motifs, and characters are illustrated by intricate woodcuts of remarkable quality. The illustrations seem to have been, according to Jocelyn Godwin, the inspiration for Italian Renaissance pagan gardens, sculpture, and even architecture. Polifilo first finds himself in a dark forest, which frightens him. Lions, tigers, and bears, oh dear. But he prays to Jupiter for protection and emerges to come upon a massive step pyramid with an obelisk rising from its peak. And then he goes on to discover a huge statue of an elephant with an obelisk on its back. He goes inside the elephant and finds it illuminated and filled with chests, statuary, and with mysterious hieroglyphics. He emerges from the elephant, we don't know quite where, passes by a statue of a horse ridden by cherubs, a reclining colossus, and he finally comes to a portal, which leads him into another enclosure in which nymphs are performing a dance. That reminds us of the circle dance led by Virginia, in the 17th century occult fantasy novel, The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosencruz, 1616, by Valentine Andrea. It also kind of reminds you of the, uh, that circular dance in uh, the movie Eyes Wide Shut. Passing through an elaborate portal gate, another wooded province of his netherworld, and is confronted by a fearsome dragon. The monster chases him into a cavern from which he emerges into the pleasant queendom of a country of beautiful nymphs ruled over by Queen Eleutherlinda, which means free will, and attends a fabulous feast with an exotic gourmet menu that the author describes in deliciously sensuous detail. It made me hungry. I come from the icebox. And while they are entertained by erotic dancing girls. He tells the queen about his quest to find his love, Polia. The queen assigns several of her nymphs to guide him to three mysterious gates set in a cliffside with inscriptions in Arabic, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin over the lintel of each doorway. Now, this scene is illustrated in one of the many woodcuts that adorn the book, and a glance at it will quickly recall the entrance to the dwarves' minds in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. He chooses the third door as the most hospitable, and he goes through yet in, into yet another dimension of his dream world. Here, he finally meets Pulia in the form of another beautiful nymph, but he must travel with her uh, through a landscape littered with ruins from the age of classical paganism. He leaves her at a pleasant spring while he goes to explore these ruins. 
Uh, in the ruins, he takes a nap and falls into another dream. And within this dream, this is a plot device that Valentine Andrea also uses in The Chemical Wedding, dreams within dreams within dreams. He wakes from a nightmare, thinking that Polia is in danger, and hurries back to where he left her. She meets him and allays his fears, now confessing that she does love him. They proceed on until they come to a temple of the mother goddess, Venus, and here they are formally engaged to be married. Ceremony, they are sent on a journey to the island of Venus, Satheria, where they will find the fountain of Venus, which is the home of the mother goddess herself, who will marry them. They reach the shore of a lake or sea and find a boat manned by heroes. That's Cupid, Venus' son. And he welcomes them aboard, and they set out for his mother's holy island. They arrive and go ashore. The island is circular and entirely developed as a formal botanical garden. Its ground plan resembles that of Plato's Atlantis, and the ascending levels give it the appearance of a ziggurat. Now, we recall that the sacred marriage was intended to take place on the highest level of the ziggurat. And as the lovers proceed toward the center of the aisle, all the various trees, plants, shrubbery, and friendly animals are meticulously described. And finally, they reach the fountain. Because the fountain of Venus is at the heart of the Hypnoradamantia, it is the real secret heart of the book, the key to the codes and the hermetic magical repository of the knowledge and wisdom hidden in the book. And like that one tale hidden in the vast corpus of the Arabian Nights, that's the tale of Abu Hassan and his slave girl, in case you want to go look for it. It is the golden spring which flows over the fleece, and all we have to do is comb out the gold. And so, let us immerse ourselves in the Holy Fountain itself and read from the Hippomantia Polophilo. And the issue here will be that of Polophilo himself, or, or at least Francisco Colonna, who originally wrote the book. And the chapter begins with an abstract. They all do, by the way. They 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 they, they have the abstracts just like we do with the Hermetic Hour. Polophilo describes the wonderful artifice of Venus's fountain in the center of the theater, and how the curtain was torn, and he saw the Divine Mother in her Majesty, and she silenced the singing nymphs, assigning three of them to Polia and three to him. When Cupid wounded them both. The goddess sprinkled them with the water at the fountain, and Polophilo was reckoned, was reclothed. And lastly, when Mars arrived, they were given leave to depart. That's the abstract, okay. Coming with due veneration and great honor to the mysterious fountain of the Divine Mother, the ready-witted Polio and I affectionately knelt down before it, whereupon I felt an imperceptible sweetness thrilling through me to the point that I did not know what to do. This incredibly delicious and pleasant place, with its unbelievable decoration of spring greenery, the birds chattering in the pure air and flying, twittering through the new foliage, all this 
gave the utmost delight to the external senses. And as I listened to the lovely nymphs singing melodies together with their unusual instruments and watched their sacred actions and modest movements, I felt ardently impelled to the height of bliss. Moreover, as I carefully and curiously examined the building that displayed such nobility of design and such elegant arrangement and breathed avidly such fragrances as I had never known before by immortal Jupiter, I truly did not know which of my senses I should fix firmly on to my intended object. Distracted as I was by so many different pleasures, by such excessive gratification and by such voluptuousness. And I know not whether it was I was at fault, all these beautiful and charming things that were now offered to me were all the most lovable and desirable because I knew that the celestial polio was quietly sharing in her in their enjoyment and admiring the novelty and excellence of this place and especially of this remarkable fountain. The latter stood right in the middle of this superhuman building, divinely constructed and executed as follows. It was made from the same black stone that formed the entire ground or pavement in the arena in an unbroken hole. And in the middle of a foot-wide wall, finally finished with every appropriate ornament, heptagonal in its outward form and round within, it had a surround of Simus, Soakley, small pedestals and wave moldings properly applied to the bases, which were on each of the angles. And above each of these was a column with uh, entasis or swelling, seven in all and exquisitely turned. Two of them flanked the entrance before which we fell to our knees. The right-hand one of these turned columns was of the finest sapphire and radiantly blue, and the one on the left of green emerald of outstanding color, brighter than the ones placed for eyes on the lion of the Lord of Hermes' tomb. Ptolemy gave no such emeralds to Lucullus, nor was the gift of the king of Babylon to the king of Egypt so precious. The jewels of the obelisk in the temple of Jupiter were not worth as much, nor did the statue in the temple of Hercules in Tyre excite such admiration. Next to it, there followed a column of turquoise of an intense sky blue, endowed with its special virtue, and although it was opaque, it shone with no less brightness and luster. Next Next to the sapphire column was another opaque precious stone, a pleasant yellow of Melio, and as lustrous as the translucent Ranuclus flower. And next to this was a column of hyacinth-colored jasper, and another of refluently golden topaz. And the seventh column alone was hexagonal, and made from limited from, from limpid, excuse me, from limpid Indian barrel, the color of oil, which reflected every object in reverse, 
it was directly opposite the middle of the two first columns for every figure with an odd number of angles was an angle opposite to the middle of each side. And having drawn a circle, now he tells you how to do it, having drawn a circle, construct an equilateral triangle on its radius, and then draw a line from the center through the middle of the uh, of the side adjacent to the circumference. And on that length gives the sevenfold division of the circular figure. Fortunately, he's done this for you in the book. In the middle of the shaft of the seventh barrel column, facing the fountain, there was a marvelous carving of the same stone, almost separate from the column, showing a hermaphrodite child inside a niche. Similarly, the three transparent columns to the, to the right each showed in a remarkable way a male infant within some receptacle, while on the shaft of each column to the left was an infant of the female sex. And this mystic work presented quite naturally in the very centers of the columns with such sparkling polish as cannot be achieved by rubbing with carborundum or with emery mixed with uh, tripolian chalk. And the bases, the capitals, the beams, the frieze, the cornice were purest gold, while the arches, together with the whole solid wall between one column and another, were the same stone as of the columns. And he's describing polished obsidian. In the order in which they stood, namely of sapphire, as far as the emerald column, of emerald as far as the turquoise one, and so forth. And thus the entire arcade was wonderfully constructed. In each angle of the cornice, perpendicularly above the central line of its supporting column, there was a pedestal from which rose an image of a planet with its appropriate attributes. Their height was one-third of the column below them, and they were symmetrically sculpted from pure gold. And at the front was a side-bearing Saturn, on the right, the night-shining uh, Cynthia, and on the left, so that going uh, in sequence from the first one of the circuit, it ended with Selene, with the moon. Below them, in a circle of the Zophorus, could be seen the 12 signs of the Zodiac, done in relief, with exquisite worksmanship and elegance, with their symbols and characters above them in the finest carvings. This is a big armillary. The summit of this miraculous fountain blazed forth in the form of a proud cupola of the finest you know, unveined crystal, pure and transparent. Xenocrates saw nothing like it, nor was any such found in Cyprus, None such was produced in Asia or even Germany. It was free from redness and staining, cloudless and spotless, and with no inclusions of salts or capillaries that were to be seen in it. Even Nero had nothing of this kind. It was remarkable for its purity and wholeness. Around the cupola ran a relief carving with a regular pattern of joined leaves and superimposed on it, some little monsters embraced by playful child children. The swelling and rounding of the cupola were exceedingly, uh, were excellently done and tapered toward the summit. 
where a miraculous ornament was attached, an egg set in gold, made from a carbuncle that flashed in all directions, the shape and size of an ostrich egg. This whole thing is an exercise in creative visualization. On the face of the low wall of black stone, upon which the columns rose in well-proportioned spacing, some ancient Greek letters were perfectly engraved. With their uprights, nine times their width in the refined silver in their cavities, glowing, they spelled these words. And only two letters were visible on the front, joined with the embellishment elegantly made from gold, and thereafter the letters went three by three on the other side, saying, and there's 20 of these Greek letters, and I'm not going to try to read them, but there are 20 of them, and, and uh, this is obviously a magical formula or a capitalistic formula. Each side was three feet wide, and the height from the golden base to the beam was seven feet. I think that the dignity and reputation of these things, with their miraculous, matchless workmanship, will be more appropriately served by my silence. Therefore, my description will be poor and meager. Between the sapphire and emerald columns, there was the most beautiful velvet curtain hanging in circular folds and, at, and, and attached by knotted cords, such that faithful nature the fruitful, excuse me, the fruitful nature could never have thought of producing anything more fair. Even for the gods, it was a material and a weave such as I could never describe, but its color was that of sandalwood, brocaded with lovely flowers and with four Greek letters subtly embroidered in the decorative raised work. And then there's four more Greek letters, which are probably the key to the above the formula. The marvelous curtain sent from Samus to Delphi would give way before it. It appeared to my polio as the most precious treasure of all, veiling the majestic and divine presence of the Venerable Mother. And while Polio and I knelt in on bended knee, the divine Lord Cupid gave the golden arrow to the nymph Synesia and made a courteous sign that she should offer it to Polio. And that she, with this fearful arrow, should tear and rend the noble curtain. But Polio was distressed by the order to tear to tear or damage it. And although she was subject to the, this divine command, she seemed uneasy with it and hesitated to obey. The Lord, smiling straightway, enjoined the nymph Synesia to give the arrow to the nymph Philadia. And she then presented it to me. And I completed the penetration of the honey sweet wholesome that the honey sweet and wholesome Polia dared not to do. Avid as I was to behold the most holy mother, no sooner had I taken the divine instrument than I was surrounded by a sourceless flame. And with urgent emotion I violently struck the little curtain. As it parted, I saw Polia look almost saddened. And the emerald column made a dim as if it were breaking in pieces. And behold, I saw clearly the divine form of her venerable majesty as she issued from the springing fountain, the delicious source of every beauty. No sooner had the unexpected 
had the unexpected and divine sight met my eyes, then both of us were filled with extreme sweetness and invaded by the novel pleasure that we had desired daily for so long, so that we both remained as, as though in an ecstasy of divine awe. And as I came to myself, I began to experience a justifiable fear, thinking of what Aristeo's son saw in the valley of Garafia, I felt simultaneous astonishment and terror. The divine Venus stood naked in the middle of the transparent and limpid waters of the basin, which reached up to her ample and divine waist, reflecting the Cytherian body without making it seem larger, smaller, doubled or reflected. It was visible, simple, and whole, as perfect as it was in itself. And all around, up the first step, there was a foam that gave off the scent of musk. The divine body appeared luminous and transparent, displaying its majesty and venerable aspects with exceptional clarity and blazing like a precious and coruscating carbuncle in the rays of the sun. For it was made from a miraculous compound which humans have never conceived of, much less seen. That's one of the big secrets. Oh, how beautiful was her golden hair, delicately arranged on her milk-white forehead and trained into little curls with errant and restless tips, which the curling prevented from straightening. Her rosy shoulders decorously held back the wavelets that cascaded freely downward. Her face was of roses and snow. The eyes were sky-blue and luminous, with an amorous and holy expression. The cheeks were like crimson apples on the narrow coral red mouth with its nourishing source from which every fragrance was born. The bosom was a treasure house, whiter than snow, and the two swelling breasts defying the force of gravity. The body was of polished ivory that seemed to exhale the fragrance of musky ambrosia. The lovely hair, finer then the most tenuous gold thread hung down upon the pure water, not submerged, but floating in long curls upon the surface. Ah, how my master Fred Adams would have loved this loved this book. In fact he gave me he he gave me my first copy of it, the great big one. Um, so So this, this is the secret of the Hypnoradamantia. And as it is with most great secrets, everything is hidden in plain sight. Certainly there may be hidden codes and often are ciphers in the text as the Princeton boys theorized, but they missed the big one. Now let's have a look at the fountain of Venus from a hermetic perspective. First, we have all the planets and the signs of the zodiac laid out in a magical circle format. 
We have translucent pillars containing anthropomorphic god forms, like the imprisoned fallen angels in my Adamson's quest story. The fountain is surrounded by wall-to-ceiling magic mirrors made of highly polished black stone. This recalls the holy marriage chamber from the Gospel of Philip, which was not recovered until recent times, so Columbus certainly didn't have access to it. And also, our soul door at Montserrat Temple in Pasadena. Most importantly, the goddess herself is in the pool of the fountain, and just like our version depicted in our Netzach pathworking, she is transparent and luminous, displaying her venerable aspect. This is virtually identical with the description in our pathworking. We can see the psychic centers or chakras inside her body. Were we in contact with the same divine muse that the original author of uh, Polyphilo's dream and vision? Well, we certainly we certainly did not have the book back in 1973 when we first visited the Temple of Venus ourselves. And as for Valentine Andrea who wrote The Chemical Wedding in 1616, he combined these elements and the description of the tomb of Adonis, which we'll visit in, uh, shortly, into Christian Rosenkreutz's unauthorized dreamland visit to the tomb of Venus and his naughty peek at her nude body on how could he resist it after he's being wounded by Cupid's arrow. Cupid is something of a villain in both these stories. The tomb of Adonis which the goddess visits yearly, replicates our yearly Adonia ceremony, which we've been performing annually ever since 1974. Now let us defer to the hypno for the details of these aspects of this 500-year-old revelation. And I might mention that no sooner do the... Um, uh, do uh, uh, Polyphilo and, and, and Polya uh, meet the goddess then, then the god Mars arrives, and, uh, and, and that's their cue to leave. And so let us, let us continue um, the abstract of this chapter. Potiphilo tells us how, upon the arrival of the warrior, he left the theater together with the whole company of, of the other nymphs, and they came to a sacred fountain where the nymphs tell of the tomb of Adonis and how the goddess would come here at the anniversary to perform the holy rites. And then, ceasing from their songs and dances, persuade Polya to tell of her origins and how she came to love. But anyway, so getting into this chapter, there they get they come, they they follow the nymphs to the uh, uh, to this, and so we arrive gaily at a limpid and sacred spring that bubbled forth plentifully. Its banks were not overgrown with moss, maidenhair fern, dianthus, and, and spleenwort, but were edged around and ornamented with a rim of Macedonian marble, not polished but naturally shiny and many-veined and shaded by aquatic plants. These had multiple stems of flowers with wonderful and heartening scent and fresh dewy fawns. The flowing waters ran out of the spring in a lovely rivulet, 
which passed beneath the leafy rowan trees with a soft and gentle murmuring beneath the temperate shade of this pleasant place there grew the immortal laurel intermingled with the copiously red-fruited arbutus trees, a conical cypress that never re-sprouts, a lofty palm tree, a popular and resinous coniferous pine, all placed at equal distances and arranged in perfect order, distributed in a circle around this faithful spring, this faithful spring, decorated with its foliage and flowers, they shaded the rough soil that was carpeted with soft and delicate herbs. And from beneath this arbor, whose straight trunks were free from hindering branches for the height of one pace, one could see the open area within the borders. The sacred spring was hexagonal in shape, and 12 paces around and 4 paces from its edge, that is, from the marble rim. And the inside circle of trees and the circumference of the latter in 36 paces. The trees were all oranges, lemons, and citrons, providing a comfortable and calm enclosure or, or cloister and offering a splendid spectacle to the eye. They were thick with handsome leaves and scented flowers, and shone with the fine ripe fruits that went from an attractive russet or a, or a minimum color to a pale yellow. Each many-branched tree was separated from its neighbors by a uniform and measured distance. They were full of all sorts of singing birds, especially nightingales, thrushes, and solitary blackbirds, whose sweet twitterings gave delightful voice to the amorous urges of spring. The round space left by these trees was artfully fenced with a trellis one pace in height and circular in form and ingeniously made from a complicated intersecting of reddish sandalwood into which rose bushes were woven and threaded. Wandering through the gaps were the hundred-petaled rose, the Gratian, the autumn rose, or Coralina, with crimson flowers, their leaves never falling, their scent inconceivable and spectacular in their greenery. I entered in here with awe through the little gate of the same kind of work. Adjoining the entrance, there was an arbor as wide as one side of the spring and from corner to corner, and of equal height, assigning one pace to the perpendicular part and one to the arch, and it was 12 feet in length, covered with another, with noble roses, with abundant vermilion flowers and a ravishing scent that, that were trained uh, over bright golden rods. On the shiny floor or pavement was tessellated with vermiculate work of precious stones. And from the sides of the arbor there extended benches of jasper, elegantly formed with the proper moldings, seven inches high and six deep. The whole enclosed space and level mosaic floor were everywhere. Else, and then it was entirely green. With no bare patches and carpeted and, and carpeted with 
my huge scented wild thyme, mowed so that not one leaf protruded above another. This greenery continued in all its pleasing density and uniformity until it touched the periphery of the spring. And now we're going to get into it. I saw a venerable object beneath the arbor to which we and, and the divine nymphs devoutly paid our respects. It was wondrous and full of mystery, resembling a tomb five feet in length, ten twelfths of that in width, and the same in height, excluding the the cornice, which was measured five inches. This tomb, said the nymphs, was that of Adonis, the hunter, slain in this place by the tusked boar, and here, similarly, holy Venus had leaped naked from the spring and torn her divine calf on the rose bushes, as with indignant looks and anguished soul she hastened to help Adonis, when jealous Mars had beaten him. This little tale could be seen perfectly carved on one of the long sides of the tomb, together with her son Cupid collecting the crimson blood afterwards in an oyster shell. We're moving into the Holy Grail legend here. The nymphs added that this divine blood had been deposited in the tomb together with the ashes, with all sacred ceremony. And on the side of the tomb facing our entrance, there was a circle carved within the square and filled with a precious jacinth, transparent vermilion in color, and coruscating with a flame-like splendor. When the light fell on it, blazing intermittently, so that I could scarcely keep my eyes on it. On the other long side of the tomb, I saw Adonis again, pictured as a hunter with some shepherds, shone among the bushes with his hounds on the dead boar, and he, and he himself killed by it. And there was Venus, bitterly weeping and collapsing, in a faint, the kindly arms of the three nymphs who were clothed in a delicate, delicate material and weeping along with the goddesses they held her, while her son whipped the flowing tears from his, wiped the flowing tears from his mother's eyes with a bunch of roses. Between the male and female figures, inside a garland of myrtle, I saw the inscription, Impuros Suvrateus. Similarly, on the other subject, there was written in Greek, Adonia. And all these things were shown with such exquisite sculpture that I was moved to gentle compassion. This is the ancient Adonia ceremony. You'll find it in the Golden Bell. After this ceremony was completed, we went out of the sacred arbor. The illustrious nymph said to us with amiable eloquence, Know that this is a mysterious place, famous and greatly venerated, and that each year on the anniversary, the day before the Kellens of May, the Divine Mother comes here with her beloved son for a sacred and stately rite of purification. 
in which we, her subjects, all join with splendid solemnity, diligently serving her rule and for our own and for her, of our own free will. And she confers here with gentle tears and sighs, then orders us to strip all the roses from the pergola and the trellises and to scatter them ritually on the alabaster tomb with loud invocations until it is heaped over with them. And then we depart in the same order and procession and on the day after the covenants that the spoiled rose bushes flower again with the same number of roses as were fallen. Moreover, the goddess returns at the eyes of the, of the, of the, in the same manner and orders the heap of roses to be removed from the tomb and flung into the spring with holy acclamations. And uh, then the roses are carried away by the stream that comes out of the spring. And, of course, this is the... Uh, 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 this is not in the text. I'm, I'm making a side commentary. This, this is the uh, this is the, the holy spring up at Afaka in in Lebanon, uh, and the river Adonis runs red um, every year, commemorating this event. And um, the ceremony was carried out ever since ancient times. All the way up to about 300 A.D., when Saint Saint Chrysostom led a mob of, mob of Christian zealots up there and, and and slaughtered the worshipers. Of course, we revived the ceremony ourselves, and we've been doing it since 1974. After the Divine Lady has bathed alone in the spring and come out of it, she makes another loving commemoration of her dear and beloved Adonis beaten by Mars, in our case by my moat, the Grim Reaper. One-eyed, she throws herself on the tomb and embraces it, soaking her rosy cheeks with tears. Then we all join her in her lamentations with the piteous whimpering, because on that day the divine calf whose foot we kissed was pricked by the thorns with these roots. And then on the same day, the lid of the of the secret repository is solemnly unlocked and opened. And in this venerable ceremony, we all rejoice with excellent song. While the sun receives and bears the oyster shell of the holy blood, and she, the priestess, glorious in her serene beauty, holds again the bunch of roses uh, with their undiminished bloom. No sooner is the precious liquor than all the white senses are tinged with crimson and as they now appear. And when we circle the spring solemnly three times, the goddess, who alone is weeping, wipes her wet eyes with a bunch of roses. And after the third circuit of the sacred objects are put back in their place, and the whole of the famous day is dedicated strictly to pleasures, to choiring, playing, and singing. And at such a time, it is easy to obtain her grace. On the side of the, on the, side of the sepulcher facing the spring, there were five little steps leading down to the stone edge to the flat bottom, which was not sandy, gravelly, but paved with precious inlaid vermiculate work. The outlet of the stream conveyed its water underground 
beyond the trellises. Now that's underground, of course, is the uh, connotes the um, the grotto up at Afakum, because this all started and this 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 all started up in up in Lebanon, you know, way back in well, 1500, 1500 BC or more. Now, a comparison of these two episodes from the Hypnorati, from the Hypnoratomachia, the tomb of Venus and, uh, and, and, and the tomb of Venus chapter in Valentine Andrea's Rosicrucian story will leave no doubt that the Hypnoratomachia was Andrea's main source of inspiration, both in plot and in theme and content. They are both dream stories in which the dreamer loses his love and wakes up in his bed at home. In Polophilo's case, he finally embraces Polia and she disappears in a puff of smoke. In Christian Rosencruz's dream adventure, he is sentenced to guard the way to the castle until he is relieved by another sinner who has also glimpsed the nude body of Venus. He escapes his sons by waking up, and we are reminded of Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz as she clicks her heels or the heels of her ruby slippers together and says, there's no place like home. A few other observations about both the chemical wedding and the hypnoramachia might be helpful. There is an uncanny similarity in the content and imagery of Paraminus Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delights and the Gardens of Venus in the Hypno in the Hypnoratomachia. This is more of a synchronicity than a connection, because both works appeared in almost the same year. Bosch, Bosch's triptych in fourteen ninety nine and Colonna's Hypnoratomachia in fifteen hundred. Now, I do not mean to suggest that there is any similarity in the styles of artwork. Uh, the Hypnoratomachia's woodcuts give us chubby nymphs in classical architecture, whereas Bosch's nudist ladies are slender and fairy-like amid structures that can only be described as surrealistic. And yet, there are similarities in both works. Both are sensuous dreamlands. We might say that that the Hypnoratomachia is inspired by classical paganism, which was being revived in the early Renaissance Italy, whereas Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delights was sponsored by the Libertine Gnostic Adamite sect, which was popular in Northern Europe at the end of the 13th century. Now, the Adamites believed that innocent nudity could return us to the paradise of the original Garden of Eden. I might add that neither Bosch's triptych or the hypno or the hypno's woodcuts are pornographic, although they both contain some gruesome sadistic scenes. Now in the Hypnoratomachia, Polio has a nightmare in which she witnesses an angry Cupid torturing and then murdering two nude maidens because they are unwilling to accommodate their lovers. The woodcuts illustrating this sequence are too provocative for the Princeton authors to pass up when they reproduce them in the Rule of Four novel, giving their readers the impression that the Hypnoratomachia was far more salaciously erotic than it really was or was or is. And in 
Bosch's case, his sadistic scenes are confined to the hellish panel of the triptych, and they're no more gruesome than the imaginations and actual methods of the Holy Inquisition, which stalked him throughout his working life. In that same vein, our Princeton authors imagined the Ibn Ramachia's author, Francisco Colonna, emolliating himself in Savonarola's Bonfire of the Vanities, 1497 in Florence, Italy, in an attempt to save his manuscript. Well, maybe this makes a good story, but it never happened. Now, before we close this commentary, we should mention the most significant implication hidden in both the Hypnoradomachia and its progeny, the chemical wedding of Christian Rosencruz. I am referring to the more and more obvious marriage of Jesus the Nazarene to Mary Magdalene. Now, it matters not whether this union was historical or mythological. It is the proper fulfillment of our human spiritual destiny. And even if it seems unreasonable, it deserves the same willing suspension of disbelief required to sustain the Immaculate Conception and the Virgin Birth. So it was, so it is, and so shall it ever be. Believe it, and it shall be so. And may the Lord and Lady bless you, and good night, and good magic. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.